Is there any question why we're here this morning? Oh, big response. <laughs> I guess the response wasn't so clear, but uh, you know, after singing what we've sung, after reading what we've read, and just knowing this day and all that it is, there is no question why we are here. It is to celebrate Christ and his victory over sin and death. So let's, uh, let's just turn our hearts to him in prayer and ask him to bless our time together. Father, you are a great God. You have power over all things. And we could see you as a God who is far off. We could question that power in this sphere, in this uh, place where we live, except you entered in. You came into this world and you took on the biggest enemy, the biggest, the greatest tyrant that there was in this world. And you showed your power, your power over sin, over death, over Satan. And because of your love and your grace to us, we share in that victory. Because of Christ's death for our sin and his resurrection, we now enjoy this confidence that we've been singing about, this hope that has transformed this life and the next, that has in fact transported us into the next life even here and now. So we pray that as we've, we've lifted up our voices and as we've sung to you and sung about this victory, we pray that you continue to teach us, to, uh, to train us in our understanding so that we would live a life that just exemplifies this victory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on Friday, we got together and we answered that question, tried to answer that question, why did Jesus Christ have to die? And we saw that he acted both as a representative for mankind, having lived a sinless life in the flesh, and then taking our sins on himself. And then he died on the cross as the express image of our God. Pouring out not only his, his blood, but pouring out God's love for us. And he was that perfect high priest who not only made sacrifices, but became the sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And they were all just pointing to this sacrifice that could take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, did that line, until his enemies should be made a footstool, did it, do you remember hearing that before? Psalm 110. In fact, 
as I read and studied this week, I saw it's repeated in a number of different places that Jesus has his enemies put under his feet, the enemies sin and death. And it leads us to our thoughts on his final role as the conquering king who is able to reconcile us to God. Now, I've mentioned a couple times before this chart, and we're going to put the chart up. Can, do, do you have it? You don't have it. Oh, you can find it. Okay, I thought we had it. Um, anyways, the questions that I went into this whole study for this past week was, why did he come? Why did he die? And why did he rise again? Why did he have to do these three spe- specific things? And I thought those are pretty obvious questions for each of our celebrations But then as I read, I realized, why did he have to come? Well, it was for revelation of God and truth. Why did he die? It was to represent both God and man. And why did he rise again? Well, it was a reconciliation of God and his people. And as we, I continued to study, realizing that God's roles were, or Christ's roles in coming to this world were to be prophet, priest, and king, everything sort of, sort of fell into line. And it's, it's like there's this kind of DNA in the gospel message, and it just goes back and forth between all these things. And, and you know, if we take the time to study, we see how God's truth is clear, is direct, and, and just as we went through the three different roles, prophet, revelation, we see there was revel- revelation, representation, and reconciliation in that role. As we talk about him being the priest, the same thing, those three elements. And it just keeps coming back again and again. And so I, I trust you're encouraged by the cohesiveness of this message, this gospel message. So... Today we go into this, why did Jesus have to rise again? Why did he have to rise? Why was that important? There were plenty of heroes who gave their lives without rising again. Who saved people without rising again. We just have to think of the great wars, the World War I, World War II, the classic you know, example of people who went, they gave their lives to save others. They never rose again. They didn't have to. Even Jesus Christ in John chapter 15, he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for their friends. It is enough that the sacrifice has been made, that love has been shown. Was resurrection really necessary? Only if we want to confirm that there's victory. There has to be life on the other side in order for there to be real victory. You know, I I thought about this. It is noble to give your life for another, but when nothing's accomplished by that, imagine what our world would be like if All of those lives were given 
in the great wars. And yet, the enemy still won. Imagine what our world would be like if Nazism reigned. Imagine how we would view even the events of those great wars as there was a different power in control, as there were different people involved in writing the history books, as we were being taught very different things. It's odd to think about it, isn't it? But you and I today would think very differently if there had been only people giving their lives for us and yet no victory in the end. So resurrection was important. It was the victory. And you know, I even think about it. It makes me chuckle to go back to, to, uh, to this um, you know, Marvel Comics and how over the past number of years they've made a number of movies and they've sort of wrote a new storyline, I guess, for, for their comic books. I wasn't into the comic books. I've only seen a few of the movies, some that my kids bring my way and say, you know, you've got to see this. But anyways, they wrapped the whole thing up a couple of years ago, I think it was, with this um, movie called The End Game. And it was the final act with all these superheroes facing off with the greatest of all villains. And you know, they went through this and the greatest villain had managed to kill a number of the key characters. And we know that's not supposed to happen in the movies, is it? I mean, the hero always lives to the end, otherwise it's a bad movie. And you think, what's going to happen? How can this, this be saved? This movie is like diving because we've lost a lot of people, a lot of important people. But you know what? They had the solution. The end of the last Marvel movie, they had a resurrection. Now, it was a good thing I didn't watch that in the theater because I would have jumped up and I would have said, plagiarism! They stole that. But you know, even the guys who were writing that recognized the only way we can save this is if there's a resurrection. The only way we can turn this around from being a a movie with a feel-bad ending to a feel-good ending is if these people can be brought back. Now, they stole that from the story of stories, the real story, the true gospel. And so as we go into this, we realize that true victory is seen in the resurrection of Jesus, the return of our king from the dead. And it assures us of three things, the trustworthiness of our gospel message, the truth of our glorious hope, and the triumph of our God. Validation, verification, and victory all found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. No more correctly, all found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Corinthians, to 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15. I'm going to read the first four verses of this. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures. Here Paul is outlining exactly what the Gospel is. The Gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in the next verses... He backs up that fact of the resurrection by giving a list of eyewitnesses, groups of people who saw the resurrection in the risen Christ. Because that is the linchpin, the key piece of our gospel. Did you realize the gospel truth used to be a part of our language. I sort of stumbled across this as I was reading this week and, and, and preparing this message. That people, when they used to try and convince somebody that something is true, they made a statement to them and somebody was, you know, sort of looking at them funny or questioning the validity of that statement and they say, it's the gospel truth. You remember that? We don't hear that too often anymore, right? Most often now, people look at uh, evangelicals and their gospel as, well, you know, whatever. But there was a time not too long ago where people recognized this thing, this gospel, as something that was valid. It was validated. There was a resurrection and there were plenty of witnesses to say, yes, it did happen. And that's a crazy thing to think about it. This message that was so accepted in its day. You know, if it was false, if it was a farce, you'd think the time when it would have been least accepted would have been when the followers of Jesus were just trying to get the ball rolling, right? Just trying to convince people. Just trying to get people on board. And the time when it might have been the strongest message would be right now when people didn't know whether it was true or not. Because it was so long ago. But in that day, in that day, shortly after it happened, the resurrection was an accepted truth. There were all these witnesses, and Paul was saying, hey, you want to know if this is true? Ask them. Many of those people, they're still alive today. Check it out with them. These are the eyewitnesses. And those apostles, those apostles 
who saw Christ after his resurrection, they went to the grave dying for that truth. And you'd think at least one of them would have said, you know what, this isn't worth it. This was a fake story. But it wasn't. It wasn't. And so they went to the grave preaching that gospel. A gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was accepted in its day. It was transformational for the world. And this message is still preached today, thousands of years later. And this message includes somebody rising from the dead. You know, there are people today who think, you know, it would be better if we just sort of had nice churchy sort of things going on and, and preach to people, you should be good to each other, and let's just put the whole miraculous thing off to one side. Let's forget talking about Jesus doing miracles. Let's, the resurrection, it's not that important, but it was, and it is. It is true. And it is necessary. The gospel message says that we are sinners. We know in Romans, it tells us that sin brought death into the world. You want to verify that there's sin in the world? Well, there's death in the world. And Jesus claimed was that his sacrifice on the cross was a payment for sin's penalty. He broke sin's power in our lives, over our lives. And we say, but how could that be true? How could we know that his death on the cross, his sacrifice, really paid for our sin, really broke its power? I was reminded of a story as I was musing over this, the story of the paralytic, a true story. You remember the paralytic was lowered down through the roof before Jesus. There was a multitude looking on. There were religious leaders opposing Jesus, looking on. And what did Jesus say to that man? He said, first of all, your sins are forgiven. Because he wanted the people to know that he was more than just a healer. So he said, your sins are forgiven. Well, how would that help? Well, the religious leaders helped him out right away. They said, only God can forgive sins. They drew a line in the sand. Only God can forgive sins. You've crossed that line. And Jesus goes into this conversation. He says, what would have been easier for me to say? And you know, we're not really sure what he was referring to because in one sense, it would have been easy for him to say, your sins are forgiven. And the man goes away and everybody's left scratching their head. Well, did he really forgive his sins? I mean, that's an internal thing, and nobody can verify that, right? 
Or he could have meant it would have been easier for him to just be a healer and take care of the superficial problem. Because there were some people who could touch people and by some God-given power could heal. And so he could have been saying, it would have been easier for me just to deal with the superficial problem and not the inner spiritual problem. But in that whole situation, what did Jesus do? He took care of everything. The physical and the spiritual. Or we should say the first, he took care of the spiritual. He said, your sins are forgiven. And in order to verify that that gospel transformation took place, he said, pick up your bed and walk. So this physical healing was a sign that the spiritual was accomplished as well. And it showed that he was God. Because no one forgives sins but God. Did he forgive the sins? The power he showed in his healing, in that physical healing, confirmed it. Well, you know what? The spiritual victory that was won on the cross was confirmed by the well-documented physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's true. The gospel is true. And if you read this, if you look at it, simple things like that, that it wasn't that, wow, we've got to get this message out and kind of generate this falsehood and build this, this empty shell of, a, a, of a, a religion. And then later on, when they can't verify it, they'll believe that Jesus did rise. No. Right from the get-go, the people who were right there, who were most involved, said, he's risen. And even Christ's enemies acted as though he was risen. And it changed everything. You know, I was thinking of that in our day and age. We live in a different time, don't we? Thousands of years later. When it's easy for the skeptics to say, to say didn't happen. Prove it. You know, I was talking not too long ago with somebody who said, I'm an atheist. And in our conversation, I realized they weren't an atheist. But you know what? As I thought more about it, I realized the reason most people will say they are atheists is because they're lazy. This should change our perspective. This should help us in dealing with these people. The reason they say, I'm an atheist, is because intellectually, they don't want to think about it. They don't want to read the story. They don't want to go back and, and really analyze what happened. And they're lazy morally. Because you know what's going to happen or they know what's going to happen if they come up with a God. A real God. 
a God who is, has, has intersected with time and is interested in us, they realize, I'm going to be responsible to him. And so this is what we are, are, are fighting against today. And we see there are people like Lee Strobel, who was a, a, a reporter, who wanted to disprove the resurrection. There were guys like Josh McDowell, uh, uh, a famous apologist who's at the end of his life now, who was concerned with this and started to study. And these guys who started on this intellectual academic pursuit of was there really a resurrection, in the end, those guys came around and were, be, were transformed in their hearts by Christ because they realized this resurrection thing is true. They were challenged by it. And God, through the power of his spirit, transformed their hearts. Let's not be ashamed of our gospel. Let's not be discouraged by the skeptics that are out there. Why did Jesus Christ have to rise? Well, it was the, the validation showing that our gospel is trustworthy. Our gospel is something that we, we can count on. And we can count on it making a difference in our lives. Let's carry on with the truth of our glorious hope. And let's read a few more verses. 12 down through 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most, most pitiable." Now, you know, it's interesting. There's a little bit of back and forth in that. But as I read through that, I saw something this time through that was interesting, and it hit me in a very powerful way. We're not sure of what the whole problem was here. Paul obviously was answering a question that had raised in the Corinthian church. But as we read this, there's one thing for sure. There are those who are denying the resurrection, but, and this is the interesting point, not Christ's resurrection. That wasn't their problem. You read it, you can read it again, and see their problem is with our resurrection. 
Maybe they were some believers who had come from the sect of the Sadducees who believed that there was no resurrection. We don't know who they were exactly. But they were saying, no, we do not rise at the end. And that's why Paul was saying, you know, if in this life we have hope and that's it, that's, that's not really hope. We're miserable. This is just a short little space of time. And what he was doing to convince them of our resurrection one day was he was linking it to Christ's resurrection. This is the gospel we preach that Christ rose. You guys know it. You guys agree with it that Christ rose. That is how we know we too will rise because we are in Christ. Fascinating to see that, isn't it? Their problem was not with Christ's resurrection. They were not questioning the gospel. Those people who lived in that time, who knew the witnesses of the resurrection, went, well, yeah, Christ rose. Our question is about what happens to us. And Paul says, you've accepted the fact that Christ rose. And this is what the gospel is. This is what makes the gospel good news for us. You look at this life. This life is incredibly short. The longer we live, the shorter it seems. Isn't that kind of weird? (laughs) The longer we live, the shorter life is. And it's a struggle. It's a challenge. It can be discouraging. But this gospel transforms not just our future life, our life in eternity with Christ, but it transforms our perspective on this life and the things that we face in the here and now. We see that Christ lived, that Christ suffered, that Christ faced the effect of all that there was in this world in greater ways than even you and I did. And yet, he conquered the effect of sin and all of the struggle. He died, he paid for it. And we in him are victorious as well. We in him have a different perspective for these things that we face. We see these things as although hard, although a struggle, we see them as a part of his plan to show his glory. We understand that Not only will we have a new life, we have that new life now. We see through a glass dimly right now. But one day, one day face to face, one day, we will be with our risen Lord. No, not wishful thinking. Not a coping mechanism. But what God has promised in his word 
and what he has shown to be true through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that one day we will rise as well. Romans 5, 19 to 21 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We're more aware of sin with the law. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death reigned. Death, physically speaking, is the undisputed champion in this world. It always wins. We're held captive by it. God made a good world. A world without sin and death, but it seems now... Satan is holding this world hostage with sin and death. But what we see in our gospel, it's Christ's gospel, but it's ours as well in him. Christ came in overpowering the strong man and broke the power of sin. And as we tend to sing in different forms in different songs, he put death to death. We sang that again this morning. I'd never seen it in that song before. He put death to death. And this is the triumph of our God. We continue to read. It becomes very clear that the resurrection is all about a spiritual victory. Almost a political victory about Christ becoming king over all. Let's read some verses from 1 Corinthians 15 as well, verses 24 down to uh, 28. It says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, or, or sorry, the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. There it is again. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Christ is accepted. Christ remains king under God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. A lot of very political sounding language there. Subjection reigning, kingship, power. 
When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the victory was won. It was won right then and there. The victory was over. I think it was interesting that mysterious and often disputed verse in Matthew chapter 16, the end of the chapter, verse 28. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of man, or the, sorry, the son of man coming in his kingdom. And you know, people read that and their antennas go up and they go, wait, wait a second. All of those people died before Jesus has returned again. But it's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about Jesus Christ showing or coming in the kingdom, in the kingdom's power. And that happens at the resurrection. The resurrection was the victory. Christ said just before that, he says, I'm going to tell you, he started to tell them about how he was going to die and how he was going to rise again. And when he rose, the victory was won. He walked out of that tomb. The victory was won. Signs of that victory followed. Other people were raised. The apostles were transformed. The church was born and exploded. The kingdom of God on earth, in his church, in Christ's church. The kingdom of God is within you. There will be one day when there will be the final sign. When Christ returns to this world as king to judge the world. But for now we're in a holding pattern. For now, the final signs or the, the other signs are still being worked out. Christ in his kingdom is being shown through his church. Christ's victory over sin and death is being shown in you and in me as we live out that resurrection power in obedience to him. Sometimes we can say, well, things don't look very victorious right now. I don't feel so victorious. I'm not feeling the power of the resurrection. But you know, it's really dependent on you and I and our willingness to live our lives in Christ, to walk with Him. To say yes and amen to each prodding of the Spirit, to the direction He gives. We want the world to know our gospel. We want them to see the power of our God. We want them to understand the victory of the resurrection. 
there's a great dependency on us submitting to the King of kings and Lord of lords and to allow him to live through us in that same power. It goes on and on through, through the word of God, this idea of Jesus Christ not simply being the great prophet better than Melchizedek, the, the great, or sorry, better than Moses, the great high priest, better than Melchizedek, but also the king of kings and the Lord of lords, a king like no other. We could read from Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This after it talks about his death and resurrection. So that the name of every Jesus, or at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We want people to confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. We want to bring them in as worshipers as well. It depends. To a great extent. On our worship. Our recognition of Jesus Christ as Lord. And not just how loud we sing. Not just how faithful we are when we come to church. But how we live these lives. In his power over sin and death. Father, we thank you for what you accomplished through the Son, how you um, worked out our salvation for us in history, in time. And we are thankful, Lord, that we have this opportunity to live out that victory, this victory in our lives today, the victory of your resurrection. Our gospel is true. Our hope is real. The victory has been won. Dear Lord, help us to live that victory for you. Amen.